Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12? We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12, a paragraph right here in the center, chapter 12, verse 12. Hear now God's word. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is an intense paragraph, and Lord, there is a promise here, there is a warning here, and we trust that your Holy Spirit is going to take this word and apply it to each of our hearts individually and to us as a church body. You're going to warn those who need to be warned, you're going to encourage those who need to be encouraged, you're going to send out your word, and you're not going to take it back until it has done its work. We trust that you do that with your word, and so we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, guys, I realize that I am still very young. I'm a young pastor, I'm very young, and it's dangerous at this stage of my life to make massive overgeneralizations, right? You can get to this age and start thinking that you can kind of declare things to be so, and they're not so, and so I want to be very careful about that. But I'm going to kind of go out on a limb today and do that, make a grand overgeneralization. And that is this. In the short time I've been around, the short time I've been alive, I think that there are some people in this life who are really, really, really bad explainers of board games. They're just bad at it. They can't do it. They probably can never do it. You know these people. They just, they don't know what they're doing. There are some people who are really, really good at that, but there are other people, they're just terrible. They couldn't explain a board game to save their life. And and these bad people, they all have the same method of doing it. They take everything out of the box at the same time, and they just start handing you things. I mean, you've got dice, you've got Monopoly money, you've got tokens, you've got spells, and they launch into the description, and halfway through, they're already giving you caveats and ways to get bonus points, and you're all over the place. You just want the dumb game to be over, right? You don't even want to play anymore by the time they're done. That's a bad board game explanation. But then there are some people in this world who are really, really gifted at explaining a board game. And what they do is they leave most everything in the box, but they take out the board and they set it on the table and they take your hand in their hand and they look you in the eye and speak to you very softly and they say to you, you can forget everything else that I say. You don't have to remember anything except this. I need you to get your green guy from this square right here to this square over here. And if you do that, you win. The world is yours. When I hear an explanation like that, it's like, give me my tokens, give me my money. I've got a date with destiny. I know where I'm going. I know what to do. I can win this thing. I can do it. That's a good board game explanation. The writer to the Hebrews is setting us on this course. This is not a game. This is our lives. And we're on a race course that is fraught with danger. 
Think about this. In this chapter alone, just in chapter 12, we're just halfway into it. We've already heard about sins and burdens and weariness and faint-heartedness and persecutions and discipline and runners who fail to finish. Danger is absolutely everywhere. It's no wonder that he begins this paragraph with this race analogy, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, because when he thinks about his audience, all he sees are drooping hands and weak knees. If you come this morning in the middle of this race and you feel exhausted, you feel weary and faint-hearted, then you find yourself in good company. You're surrounded by exhausted Christians. But if we were going to start there, if we decided to start this passage by unpacking all the danger first, that's like a really bad board game explanation. That's all shoots and no ladders. I mean, to start this passage and to launch into this thing and talk right away about the root of bitterness... And Esau-like immorality is like explaining the game of Monopoly by starting with the jail. You don't do that. That's a bad way to explain the thing. we got to get the goal in our mind. we got to get the direction in our mind. we got to know where we're headed with this thing before we can begin to unpack what the dangers and the pitfalls are. The goal, the aim, The chief end for which we live and move and have our being is all over Hebrews chapter 12, if we have eyes to see it. Verse 2, look to Jesus. Verse 3, consider Jesus. Verse 25, do not refuse Jesus. Verse 28, be grateful for the kingdom of Jesus. And smack in the middle of the paragraph that we just read, in verse 14, is a promise that is stated in the negative. Do you know where this whole thing leads? Do you know where this race is headed? Do you know why we're dodging pitfalls at every turn? It's because verse 14, you will see the Lord. You're going to see the Lord. You're going to come face to face with the living God. You will see the Lord. What else can I possibly promise you? What else would encourage you to strengthen hands and knees? Whatever direction could we head than this promise that you will see the Lord? Whatever else we hope for in this life, hope in this. Whatever makes us happy now, weep over the truth of this. Whatever we mourn for in this life, rejoice in this. Whatever aches and pains and obstacles we have overcome for this, Christian, you are going to see the Lord. You're going to come face to face with Jesus. We look to him today, we consider him today, we hear his voice today, but there will come a time when you and I will see him as he is. We're going to see the Lord. Think about Jesus when he began his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. He climbs up on a mountain and he gathers people to himself. And the people he gathers are, first of all, this crowd that is being described as having every disease and affliction, as being harassed like sheep without a shepherd. They're there in front of Jesus. And then he also brings his disciples. He's going to name 12 of them. 
And of the 12 disciples, one is going to apostatize and leave him. And 10 of them are going to be murdered for following him. And you think as he begins to talk to this diverse group from all that pain, he could very well begin the Sermon on the Mount by saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for where you've come from, and I'm sorry where this whole thing is going to lead you. But he doesn't. One of the first things he says is he looks them dead in the eye, past disease, past affliction, past the man who's going to be beheaded, and past the man who's going to be crucified upside down. And he says to the crowd, blessed are the pure in heart. They're going to see God. You're going to see him face to face. Psalm 11, 7, the upright shall behold his face. Revelation 1, 7, behold, he is coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him. Friend, you have not beheld such beauty. You haven't looked on such kindness. You haven't rejoiced with such joy. You haven't just lingered and meditated on such kindness and gentleness until on that day you see God face to face. If you forget everything we say today, you forget the Apostles' Creed, you forget the call to worship, you forget the announcements, do not forget this friend you will see the Lord. That's where this entire thing is headed. If we get that in our minds, if we see the course laid before us and we know where this thing ends, we can begin to take a step back and say, we've got real questions about this passage. We've got real questions about the dangers that we're being warned against. And if we can see the end, we can begin to address the dangers that are here. When I read this passage, I have three questions, and maybe you share one or or all of these with me. We're going to answer each of these in turn. Number one, verse 15, how is it that one fails to obtain grace? Number two, also verse 15, what is the root of bitterness, and how does that defile many? Number three in verse 17, what does it mean that Esau found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears? Now, I asked those questions, and it could almost feel like we've got a bunch of tangents happening here. We said all these sweet things about seeing the Lord, and and now we're running after these exegetical tangents. But I think we're going to see that the goal remains the same, and that all of these three questions are elements, are pitfalls, are dangers that we encounter. And the answer to each of these is, at least in part, apostasy. What it means to turn and to walk away from the course that God has set before us. So let's look at them each briefly. Number one, looking at verse 15, how does one fail to obtain grace? What does that mean and how is that possible? In fact, you could look at that and then you could look back at verse 14 because it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, that can begin to feel like a crisis of faith, right? I thought when I was born again and I came to faith that I was declared holy, and now I'm being called to strive for a kind of holiness without which I don't get to see the Lord. I thought when I was born again, I received this free gift of grace, but now I'm being warned, I hope you don't fail to obtain the grace that God gives. How can you fail to obtain a free gift, right? How can that not come directly to you? And if the giving of the grace depends on the running, then is it pure grace after all? Or is it something else? Are we earning the reward that we face? Well, 
Truly, this is no crisis. This message has been the same in the book of Hebrews, and it's been the same throughout Scripture. Very simply, we fail to obtain grace when we reject grace. When we turn away from it, we fail to receive it. We don't get grace when we turn our back on God and we begin to walk away from Him. We hear these kind of warnings throughout Scripture related to grace. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 6.1, Paul is writing to a church that truly struggles with deep sin and idolatry. And he says to them, We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. There is such a thing as hearing the gospel and making some move that looks like receiving the gospel, but in the end you prefer your sin over the grace and you walk away from it and you have received this thing in vain. In the same way in Galatians chapter 5, he's writing to a church who is considering a different race than the one we're running now. We're given a race here in Hebrews that is the Jesus as the pioneer race, and that's one race. But the church in Galatia is thinking about a different race that is the law-abiding race. If I begin to receive back the law and I do these things, then I will receive the grace that God gives. And Paul says, if you step off this course with Jesus as your pioneer, and you step on that course and abiding the law, you will have fallen away from grace. It's yours. Receive it. But if you walk away from it, you fail to obtain what's being offered to you. This is not because grace is not available, but because we do not avail ourselves to the grace as it is being offered. We can walk away from it. That's what it looks like to fail to obtain grace. Let's talk about number two. What is the root of bitterness and how does it defile many? I don't know if in your Bible, when you look at this, you see the root of bitterness in quotes. And it is uh, is a quote. It's a reference to Deuteronomy 29. And in Deuteronomy 29, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel before they go into the land of Canaan. And he's warning them about the idolatry that they're going to face. And he says to them, don't do this lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. You've got this powerful contrast that's growing in the chapter. Because just last week we talked about the discipline of the Lord, and and the writer to the Hebrews promised us from verse 11 that discipline is painful, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Think about that. As a believer, we can feel beaten down. As a believer, we can feel barren. As a believer, it can feel like none of our life is amounting to much. But God is saying to us in Hebrews 12 and places like Psalm 1 that when he sees you, he sees a tree that's planted by streams of water. You're yielding your fruit in season and your leaf does not wither. When God lays eyes on you, he sees you in his son as an oak of righteousness. That's what a believer looks like. But that's not what's happening here in verse 15. A person who turns their back on God, a person who walks away from him, that person is like a poisonous weed who springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Apostasy, to reject God, reject the gospel, and walk away from him, that creates collateral damage around that person. That person who is walking away from God can begin to wound and defile people around him. It's almost like the image of a man who's drowning. You try to swim in and save that person, and he could begin to pull other people down. 
That's why scripture is so explicit with how to approach and apostate someone who's walking away from the Lord. That means that in this church, according to scripture, if somebody in our midst overtly rejects the gospel, they say to us, you know, I know I'm a member of this church and I know I said what needed to be said at a new member interview, but I'm telling you now, I don't believe this. I don't receive this. I do not think that God is the one true God. I do not think that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. That is the overt apostate, but also the insidious apostate, the person who will still recite John 3.16, and they'll still call themselves a Christian, but they have chosen a sin in their life above their affection for God, and they will not repent of it, but they will pursue it. To those two people, we approach them individually, we approach them in pairs, we plead with them until it comes to the point in time where we as a church gather together and we discern to excommunicate this person from our midst, because if we leave them as a member claiming the things that they claim, they're going to defile many. They're going to begin to drag other people into their doubt. You excommunicate that person. They are no longer part of this fellowship. They are not a brother or a sister in Christ. They do not have access to the Lord's table. And Paul says you're actually supposed to treat them like an unbeliever, which means we immediately turn around and chase them, right? We, we show them the exit, and then we follow hard after them and preach this gospel afresh to them do not turn your back on God. That's what it means to have failed to obtain the grace of God. That's what it means for the root of bitterness to defile many. Both of these are apostasy. Let's look at this last question. What does it mean that Esau, in our text it says this, found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears? What does that mean? I know we've talked about Esau before in chapter 11. So, Really, to summarize his life as tightly as possible, the story of Esau is the story of a man who ran after something other than the face of God. Esau is a man who picked a bowl of stew over the promise of God. He picked a Hittite wife over the wife of God's choosing. And the scene that the writer to the Hebrews is describing now is the very sad summary of his life. When Jacob took his blessing in Genesis chapter 27 and he realized that and he realized there was no blessing to be had from his father. He realized that he wanted to redo what had been done, but he couldn't. He fell into weep and bitter tears. He wept before his father because he saw that there was nothing to be done. He wanted to rewind. He wanted to do things differently. At least in that moment, he felt utter regret for the way that his life had turned out at that point. But there was absolutely no chance for him to turn back on that. When the writer to the Hebrews describes that scene, when you see Esau's tears for the decisions that he has made... That's a living analogy for us as the church today. You can't press the analogy too far, but it is a vivid analogy for us of what apostasy really means. There, unlike Esau in this life, will be no time in our lives in which we cannot come and repent and confess our sins to God. His forgiveness is always in this life available to us. Today is the day of salvation. 
Today is the day when God, He opens His arms wide to receive us, to come to Him. It doesn't matter where we've come from. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how many times we've spoken repentance and confession with lip service, but not with our lives. Today is the day of salvation, and God is like the father of the prodigal son. He will get off the porch, and He will run and pursue you as you come to Him in repentance of faith. And you can be saved today. Today is the day to repent. But the Bible says that tomorrow is a very different story. Tomorrow is not today. Tomorrow is the day that in the blink of an eye, Jesus is going to return and He's going to appear And there will be a very chilling moment in which there will be some among us sitting here today, some in our city, some in this world who tarried in repentance. They thought, I'm not going to do it today. I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to wait and live my life today. And then I'll return to God tomorrow. And a moment comes when Jesus returns, when that is no longer available. And like Esau, these people will weep with bitter, bitter tears. We learn that eternal punishment, it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that happens in part because it is extremely painful. And that happens in part because people are filled with hatred towards God. And I think that happens in part because people realize this deep regret that cannot be undone. I should have come to God today. I waited for tomorrow, and there is no chance now for me to repent. That's the reality of apostasy in our passage. I want us to think about this course. I want us to think about the fact that at the end of this race is the promise that we will see the Lord. And I want us to see that on every side of us, there are dangers and pitfalls. But if we understand that Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, we're going to lift up our hands. We're going to strengthen our knees. We're going to straighten our paths. We're going to heal what's lame, and we're going to run. And on this race, we're going to strive for peace with everyone. We're going to avoid the root of bitterness that defiles many. And we're going to learn from the life of Esau. And we are going to run the race that is set before us. I tried to be provocative in the sermon title. I tried to call this thing Chasing Grace, which if you've heard all that we've said so far, you understand why I named it that. And it can kind of sound like an oxymoron, and it kind of is, but it sets us up for this incredible scene in the Christian life as we think about the race that is set before us. I'll never forget when I was studying Hebrew and we learned just enough in Hebrew, enough vocab and enough syntax to begin translating. And one of the first passages we translated was Psalm 23, which was a cinch because we all had it memorized. And so we could kind of labor through the thing. And we got to that final verse, uh, the great verse, verse 6, that says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You know that verse? And we saw through learning Hebrew vocab that the word follow there in the English is really a painfully quaint English translation for a Hebrew word that is far more intense. The Hebrew word that's there in Psalm 23 is more like chase, pursue, and it can even mean persecute. 
So that Hebrew word, it shows up all over the place. That word that we translated follow, it shows up when Abraham gets together 300 armed men and he hunts down Lot's captors. That's the word for follow. The word that we use for follow is the word of Pharaoh when he mounts up and he chases and charges after Israel. You wouldn't go back to those texts and you wouldn't say in Exodus that Pharaoh followed Israel to the Red Sea, right? He loaded up his chariots, he armed his men, and he chased them as hard as he possibly could to the Red Sea. And that's the Hebrew word there. And that's actually the Hebrew word that's being used in Psalm 23.6. You've got this tremendous scene. As we're called to chase grace, we find that grace is chasing us. It's like when I get home from work and I walk in the door and I see kids running as fast as they can in a circle in my house and Ami tears around the corner and I say, what on earth are you doing? And she says, I'm chasing Gabe. And she runs around the corner and then out comes Gabe and he's sweating and his shirt's off and he's running as hard as he can. And I say, Gabe, what are you doing? And he says, I'm chasing Ami. And off they go around and around in a circle. That's the picture that's being built for us. We have this goal in front of us. We are going to see the Lord. The surpassing worth of that is above any weight, any sin, anything which so easily entangles any disappointment or any discipline that God brings. We're going to see the Lord. And as we take out in a full sprint after that supreme goal, we're going to find something nipping at our heels. There's something that dogs us the entire course of that race, And that is the fact that God, in his goodness and his mercy, will follow us every single day of our lives. Let's pray together. God, there are days in my Christian life where I feel like I've lost you. I look back and I don't see you and it's hard to believe the promise that you will follow hard after me with goodness and mercy that will sustain me. And I pray that those of us who feel that way, we would know afresh that you are good, that you are merciful, that you walk with us in this race. And Lord, there are those in us in our midst who even now today are discouraged and beaten down. There are some even today who wonder what it might look like if we paused for a moment and we stopped running and we sat on the wayside. Father, I pray that as a church, we would come alongside friends and brothers and sisters. We'd grab arms and hands, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would get up and we would run this race together, and you would keep the vision before us that we will see the Lord. Do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.